Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of the Tube to Table podcast, Structure Without Stress. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about how to help kids that need more structure or more support to get through um, the tube weaning process all the way to becoming happy and healthy eaters in a way that doesn't interfere with responsive feeding and feels really productive and loving. And today I have the good fortune of being joined by Brianna Brown, who is one of our amazing speech therapists at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics. Hi, Brie. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Heidi's off weaning a kid today, and so she'll be back with us next week. Um, Brie, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So I am a speech therapist, and I work at the clinic in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, And I also am a part of the Thrive feeding team. So I get sort of, I always say, the best of both worlds. So I uh, work really hard here with regular kiddos, but then I also... um, get to do all of the intensive feeding work that you guys have discussed through the podcast. So um, I, I'm really excited to kind of talk more about that today. I think so too. And I think one of the reasons that Bree's so good at the topic that we're talking about today is that in that kind of more typical regular work that she was referring to in the clinic, she gets to see kids like in, in sessions, both with feeding and other developmental challenges on a weekly basis and watch that progress progression and support them as they um, learn to master things in their everyday life. And I think that kind of overall look at general development really informs how great you are at helping kids through, that get stuck, that don't just have a clear path towards from feeding tubes to, to the family table. And so um, what I thought we could do is talk a little bit about why some kids need more structure and more support. And so since you do the majority of that work and I do some of it, I'll just summarize. And if I get anything wrong or if I leave anything out, let me know. Sure. But we talk a lot about one of the most kind of important philosophy, you know, one of the most fundamental reasons for learning to eat has to be internal. So we talk a lot about kids learning to eat for internal drives like hunger, pleasure, curiosity and togetherness, those big ones. And that some kind of more um, traditional approaches to therapy or learning to eat um, in kind of at least the American medical model tend to be really externally driven. And so kids are learning to eat for reward, praise, um, and and that whole kind of self-regulation internal drive thing gets skipped, hence setting themselves up for problems later on in life with their relationship with food and health. So some people then are left scratching their heads saying like, well, some kids have a really hard time with being able to kind of tune into those internal drives for a variety of different reasons. Some of those reasons would be cognitive things that cause it hard, make it hard for a child to be able to understand how those two things are related, how that feeling of rumbling in your belly is related to that feeling of fullness later. Yes. Some kids have a harder time with like the abstract feelings. 
So kids with autism or kids that are, have conditions or, or personalities that make them a little bit more rigid or um, concrete in their learning, uh, they may, that, those feelings are really subtle, honestly, and they're abstract. They're not tangible or clear cut. And um, we all know that some kids have a hard time with the more abstract things like emotions and the social skills. And so it would follow that those more abstract and subtle things like hunger and the drive to eat would be challenging for some kids. Another thing that comes to mind is anxiety. Kids that have a severe amount of anxiety around food or other things um, might need more support to feel safe or secure than just the sensations that they're having, especially if they've had a series of unpleasant experiences that led them to where they are with their relationship with food, which is often, if you're a listener, <laughs> you're, you're, you know what I'm talking about. It's often not much. They're not doing much with food and they don't trust it. So, Brie, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that what that structure might look like, what those supports for those kids that just need that little extra push um, might look like. Sure. Yeah. So, I think a lot of what you guys, you know, Heidi and you have already discussed about our our philosophy and kind of the way that we, we respond is very child directed, and so we take those same foundations into how we would introduce a really, you know, quote unquote, structured program for a child that's learning how to eat. Um, And structure can mean a variety of things for all different kiddos. And so these would just be some examples. But of course, um, you know, any every kid's different. But some of these are sort of, I I would say these would be my tried and true um, few things that I think most of our kiddos that have anything, like you said, um, going on with their challenge in learning to eat, we would we would definitely try some of these things. Um, so the first thing, uh, as a speech therapist, as you can imagine, I am a huge visual person. I uh, have looked and studied all of the research about visual supports being really helpful in learning a variety of skills. Um, in childhood development, but I, as I was practicing, I really started to wonder and learn also about how visuals could support a child learning skills like self-regulation or understanding hunger. And so some of those things, visuals, when I'm talking about visuals, I mean things like a visual schedule. For a younger child, that might be pictures. You would use a picture of what they're going to do throughout the day. Um, For an older child, it may be that you write a schedule. I know for me, I have my schedule in my calendar and my phone and I would be lost without it. And so um, it kind of depends on where developmentally the child would be of what sort of schedule you would use. Um, so, the, so sorry to interrupt. Just yep. So the ske- what the schedule does then is it's like preparing them so that they know what's coming and then when they're in it, what's coming next, like where they are in it. So it doesn't feel so overwhelming. Yeah. So a a visual schedule, I like to start with sort of like the whole part of their, a a big part of their day, not just mealtimes, and then sort of introducing it in a way that is really supportive to wherever they are with mealtimes. So a kiddo that's just learning how to eat, it may just be that their visual schedule is going to be sit, talk, and clean up. And that's sort of the 
the schedule that they have right now. And that's where they are with their meal times. And then over time, we expand that out to include things like eating, drinking, using a spoon or whatever it is that that we're looking to support them with. A visual schedule really, like like you said, Jen, really supports a child's understanding of what their job is and what things are coming next. So I'm, I'm sure we've all met kids that really kind of do something a little bit wacky when they're unsure of what's coming next, like throwing food or hopping out of their seat or wiggling extra. Sometimes a visual schedule of letting them know, hey, the next thing that's coming is we're going to clean up. It sort of takes a little bit of that unknown away and can have a really, a really nice kind of safe impact on what a kid understands that their job is. And that's true across the board, not just with kids that, that eat. That's why you walk into a kindergarten classroom there. You generally can find in the room somewhere some type of visual icons that are helping kids understand what what's happening around them. And I know just because I have the good fortune of working with three and amazing therapists. I know with my little guy, because we, you know, we have, I work in different countries. And so when we have a big transition, like going overseas, I've stolen ideas from you guys. And I do like a visual schedule during a difficult transition. And so it might just be on a new day where we're going to a new school. Like first we're going to have breakfast, then we're going to go on the bus, then we're going to go to school, then we're going to the playground, like something really basic like that, which may not be like <laughs> ideal, but it helps a lot. It really helps my little guy who doesn't have challenges with food, but life is hard when you're little sometimes and when there's change. And so I think it's just good to know that if, if visual schedules help us as adults get yes. through the day or um, having visual reminders help us. And then they help kids that don't have feeding challenges. Of course, it follows for a kid that has like a really challenging time or strong feelings or fear around food that a visual schedule would let some of the air out of that balloon and help calm things down a little bit. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the schedule really is something that can can start you can start on that as soon as as soon as you want really with young kids i think what you do with pictures is great um and as kids get older you know it's really funny sometimes to see how much when those supports are taken away even for me if i don't have my phone i'm sort of like lost with what i'm supposed to do next in my day and you sort of can see some of that in kids of just oh i i know what to do next and that just makes it feel all a little bit better um, and so moving from the visual schedule, there is something, I'm not sure if you guys have discussed at all, something called a first then board or we a choice in the board. podcast. So I'd love yeah. to hear more about it. Um, so first then boards and choice boards are sort of, they're kind of similar. Um, but I'll go through the, the first then board first. Um, so first then is sort of this concept in language learning that one thing comes before the next. So we talk about it in speech therapy as sort of like a early sequencing activity of understanding I have to do one thing before I can do the next. So sometimes this happens really early on with learning things like first I'm going to watch TV and then I'm going to go take a bath or vice versa, whatever it is. And this would be something that also uses those visual pictures for older kids. It might be that you write words, but what this really has provided our feeding program for a lot of kids is the understanding that I 
can do something that I want after I do something that's a little bit more challenging. Let's talk. I think Jenny might have, you might have some really good examples of why this might be a little bit different than those external. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not talking about necessarily bribing kids to eat or rewarding them for doing something that they don't want to do. We're trying to build a really comfortable mealtime by kind of pairing it together with a really preferred task. And then we're inside the mealtime. So like if the first is lunch and the then is playground, Inside the lunch, we're still being really responsive and we're still being very child directed and not and following the division of responsibility, which we've talked about so much, never forcing children to eat, never being forceful or disrespectful to what their body's telling them. But by pairing that activity with something that's really positive, there's it's kind of contagious, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> they can start to associate lunch with something that's really positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the difference there being that the mealtime itself is still, ha- we're still adding value to the meal itself. The value of the meal is not only attached to the reward or the then. So I'll give you the inverse <laughs> example. You have to eat this thing that you hate to eat. We're going to sit here until you take four bites of it. And then you can have your iPad and you get to watch it. The only reason the kid's doing the eating is for the iPad. So that's externally driven. Now, we might do something slightly different, which says it's lunchtime. And in that meal, have food present, have a certain portion that feels appropriate to a child, available of a food that that they've shown us in the past they're either interested in by eating or interested in by looking or talking about or, um, I don't know, having having seen in a sibling and they feel safe around that food. So we're going to choose something that they have told us in some way, in their little way, is okay. And we're going to make that food available and we're going to use those responsive techniques of not pushing, not forcing. And then what comes next is just the natural thing that would come next but the reason for eating still remains internal and that second thing isn't so much the reward it's just like oh once I'm done with this I have this other positive thing happening so it's just an overall positive association that next part of the day can be helpful to know you know I'm not going to have to sit here Yes, that's so true. All day. <laughs> that there's yeah, it something, does. No matter what I do at this lunchtime that, you know, I'm still going to get this playground. Right. How know? many times as an adult do you do something hard and you like tell yourself, okay, this isn't going to last forever. It's like, a f- it's five minutes. You know, I can, I can have any conversation <laughs> difficult or not. You know, we do that as adults. And so kids need that too. They need to be reminded that this, this difficult thing that's challenging, even though I'm starting to get through it through some of these responsive techniques and be open to eating, uh, it's, it's, it's still, it's still really safe, but it's not going to last forever. Even if it's hard, I, there's something, there's something else happening. I'm not stuck here. And I do think that some kids that have severe aversions or um, are afraid of food really it's just so overwhelming and in the moment you can totally forget that it's not going to take over your life it's a really scary thing and a lot of our kids that have come from maybe a program or some doing some sort of techniques that maybe didn't feel as responsive the first then is a really nice kind of first step that gets us to this understanding that the division of responsibility can work uh, for for some of these kiddos that might be really scared or really not into food that 
there's still a job for them and points out what that job might be in a really Mm -hmm. kind of helpful way. First, then most of the time would come first and then building up to a visual schedule or something a little bit longer. Like first, we're going to do these three things and then we get to do that really fun thing. And so it can be adjusted as as you need it to. Mm -hmm. Um, But really the foundation is that we're going to start to to let kids know that they have to first do something before we can do something else. And within your household, that might be total, that might be very different. It might be first, we're going to have lunch and then you're all done. And that's what Mm -hmm. it is. And the kid gets Mm -hmm. free time to choose what they want. And so um, the other thing is when you mentioned about a food that might be really comfortable or something that they've showed interest in, sometimes kids that have been in this sort of refusal pattern, um, offering choices or a choice board can actually be a really another helpful tool to use during those times to kind of minimize some of some of that refusal in a way that can feel really supportive to kids, too. So a choice board is a little bit different. It, It there are some really cool apps that we can we can share um, later about making some on the phone, but also, um, there's also easy ways to do it with, you know, going into your cupboard or your pantry and taking pictures of the four snacks that your kids shown some interest in and put printing those pictures and letting them choose. So the board part would just essentially mean that you've put them all together um, in some sort of sheet or board. But it could just be a few pictures that they're either going to do water, goldfish crackers, or grapes. And they get to make the choice from the choice board, um, choosing one, two, or three, or as many as you decide. Um, so again, it's another way to sort of show a kid that they have some control in in making some choices about things that they feel comfortable with, but the visual support really takes away some of that challenge. Even for, for some of our kids, it's just saying food, saying names of food can Mm -hmm. be really hard or Mm -hmm. sort of wrapping their head around the fact that they're going to say, I want goldfish. And then what's going to happen when they don't eat it? You know, Mm -hmm. like there creates a a little bit of that anxiety that you were talking about. And so the pictures can reduce some of that of just saying, this is what's going to go on my plate. And then again, we, we introduce those responsive techniques to, to over time, let them know when I make a choice that there's, there's no pressure for me to do anything that I don't want to. With so these great. And, and it really does ratchet down the pressure just to like link this a little bit to those early, like I'm imagining a listener saying my kid's eating zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this might be something that happens as you're pairing hunger with learning to eat and as you've discovered some things that they feel safer around. So in those examples we're talking about, if we know that a child is not eating anything, but they seem interested when you're having your grapes or when you're having your water or they've taken a sip of water from a syringe or they like to play with water, then you might then have the same choice, the grapes, the water, and something else. But the expectation that they eat it only happens when they feel safe around it and they've shown us that they're ready to eat. Um, And so so the visual schedule can be helpful even in the kind of pre 
eating stage because it gives kids exposure that feels safe. And I think we all know kids or um, have heard about kids. You, your own child, if you're a listener, might have had the experience of sometimes just being around the food is really terrifying. Absolutely. And so this can be for kids that aren't eating anything, a really helpful thing or for what they're going to, you know, play with. You know, you have to use your own judgment as a parent about what play is okay with food at your table and you're still in charge of that. Um, but, you know, if you're going to sit there and have lunch and you want them to join you, giving them a couple of choices might make them more apt to touch something or to not cry when they see it um, and to feel safer while you're enjoying it. And that's still just as beneficial as the child who might be a step or two down the road and they are taking a bite or two of food a food or two that's that those the visual schedule can be just as helpful in both of those scenarios and these things i think often are better introduced for kids that are learning to eat outside of mealtimes anyhow and so for yeah. any family that's in that spot that they're you know, maybe doing some rest or maybe just doing some play um, in mealtimes, that it may be that you take diaper changes or uh, a different time of day that makes sense to introduce some of these things so that your child is exposed to it, but it's not only in mealtimes, that then when they see it, when maybe they're ready down the road to be doing participating a little bit more that they've already sort of seen it. They've got the concept. You're already using the language. Um, that sometimes can be helpful to kind of think about too. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful point because I think what happens when there's a problem around feeding is that feeding gets all the, all this light food and feeding and mealtimes. There's like a spotlight on yes. it for a kid and it's already hard. And sometimes that spotlight makes it harder. So what we don't want to do is use visual supports or any strategy that makes mealtimes feel more special yes. or more like work and sometimes just the attention itself on a meal. So if you are only introducing visual supports or supports in general at a, or structure at a mealtime, then it's of course going to shine the light brighter on the mealtime. So that's the reason I Bree's suggesting introducing it at playtime. Are we going to play with balls? Are we going to play with, are we going to read books? And like, so that way when you need it, it's there for the the food when it's time. And the other really easy kind of one that, that we think about a lot is use of a timer, use of an auditory timer or a visual timer. Um, there are some great ones that are right there on your phone that you can download that are really child-friendly, really easy to use and free. Um, but the visual timer is actually a really nice one that can be introduced, like you said, kind of before some of this feeding mealtime work maybe <laughs> has been introduced, uh, that you can say, hey, we're going to the playground. We're going to do swings for five minutes. When the timer goes off, we're going to be all done swings. And then we're going to move on to the slide of sort of introducing some of these kind of techniques per se in a way that's really open to where your child is learning. So I think everyone could probably think of a time or a transition in their day where that might fit in a little bit easier. And it's not, yeah. it doesn't involve kind of taking pictures and printing out anything or. Yeah. Like I'm not going to, my little guy, Jonas, like I'm not going to start it with getting out the door in the morning to go to school. Cause that's already a hard yes. transition. I might start it transitioning to bath time because he loves bath yes. time. Cause then it's going to be more successful and affiliated with, uh, you know, associated with something more pleasant. And then once they're ready using a timer and mealtimes, 
for some kids works for some kids it feels a lot a lot like pressure um and so again responding in a way that that is to where your child is but a, a timer can really give a kid like we were talking about prior to of like how long do i have to sit here you know kids don't know what 5 minutes means all the time older kids you know, might hard. but a 2 year old when you say we've got a couple more minutes what does a couple more minutes mean yeah i said right. a couple more minutes and man i feel like i've been sitting here for for my whole day and so right. the visual timer i think can be really helpful for adults too to to hold ourselves accountable of saying we're going to sit for five more minutes and when that timer goes off that's that's what we're doing and um, I think also it it helps us a lot as therapists and I I know Jenny for you as a mom sort of tuning into how long kids are really doing some of these things um, can be really helpful uh, for us yeah. so yeah I think that's really true and then just like a quick reminder. You know, one of the things that happens when you have a kid on a feeding tube a lot of the time is that because you needed experts to tell you where to be and how to save your kid or keep them healthy for whatever it was that led to the feeding tube. And then after that, there's usually a series of experts that are guiding the way. And then there's this there's this problem usually with transitioning away from kind of like the medical model expert driven approach back into parenthood <laughs> and using your parenting instinct. And so with some of these things, you might be saying, that's never going to work for my kid or my kid doesn't need that. And some of you might be saying, oh, that would help my kid. He's rigid. He's nervous. He's anxious. That would help him feel safer. It would help me feel safer. So some of it, um, if it doesn't feel like it's a good fit for your family, it probably isn't. Um, and if it, if it feels like a good fit, but you don't know how to do it, then there's help out there um, and people can help you with those things. And then, um, yeah, I, I think the visual schedule, the visual timer and the auditory timer um, are like that. There, you can kind of, most people are going to know, like that's going to add anxiety or take it away. And we know a ton of kids that it really can help with mm -hmm. um, and parents that it really helps with. So that's a great one. And then I think you were going to talk a little bit about scripts or social stories yeah. and how their place in feeding. So social stories are a really great tool um, that we use a lot in speech therapy. And what a social story is in its essence is that it's teaching a social rule um, for a child, but putting them into the story and letting them know what their role is in this sort of social situation. So mealtimes are a really great one because we know all of the social time that goes into a mealtime, both good and bad <laughs> sometimes or challenging. Um, yeah. But a social story can be something like teaching a child that it's really important to keep personal space of not standing in line too close or um, why that's important, that it might make a, a friend or someone feel uncomfortable. How Totally. So, so you're like how, where that line is, how to get your head around it. Yes. So teaching something that's a little bit, when you said a little bit more abstract. And the way the social story happens is that it's embedded in a story book, if you will, yes. like uh, it yep. could be, it could be a video, but usually it's like a book format in which, you know, there's several pages and one page in the whole story might hit on that kind of overarching lesson that um, you, you, in the case of feeding, it could be 
that um, you're going to sit with your family at the table. And that might be the mm-hmm. challenge. It might be that you're going to taste food because it helps fill up your belly and gives you energy for the rest of your day. And then there's a description of the rest of your day. You don't, we're not writing social stories or kind of scripts and descriptions that, again, shine the spotlight too much on the hard part. So what you don't want to do in the story that you might help your child write is have every word and every page of the story be about be the about, hard part. Yeah. you got to talk about Meal the times. other fun stuff. Yeah. Yep. Like that you're going to talk about, you're sitting, you know, that you have your own cho- chair and that you're going to talk about your trip to the playground and what comes after, what came before. Um, and there are several guides that we'll link to in terms of kind of writing social score- stories and helping put that in context. When do you use those, Brie, in your practice? So I use them a lot for older, somewhat older kids or a kid that's really showing us that they're having a hard time understanding how to do one of these things. So like sitting, we've went through, we've sort of worked on maybe a a visual schedule and verbal cues or, you know, just verbal cues, meaning just kind of talking to them about it, but it just sort of doesn't get them to that point, that understanding, or when a kid is really interested in seeing themselves in a story. Um, I think sometimes that's been kind of a clue for me that they're really interested in learning about themselves uh, and who they are and kind of what their roles are in their family. I I think a little bit more on that like toddler age of understanding, I want more independence, that type of thing. a social story can be adjusted to something that a social story is sort of a really traditional story in a in a setup. So in a in a structured setup, we sort of use I would say what we use most of the time is would be considered more of like a script. Yeah. Um a script story of teaching a lesson um about whatever whatever it may be um in the mealtime. So I think kids Kids often, I really enjoy them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's, I, I don't know that I've ever made one or introduced one and had someone kind of feel like it didn't help. Mm-hmm. I think in most cases, a social story can really be very helpful in in kind of wrapping your head around what it is that I need to do. So yeah, in mealtimes, but in a lot of different Maybe it's cleaning up that's hard or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, we'll list some tips and links in the in the show notes. But I, I think you're right. I think we often well, – well, you know, we also know what kids are going to do better with it, the older kids yes. that are stuck and need to kind of know the – I don't know, the map of what's coming. And, and that helps kind of fill – connect the dots for them so that when they're in the actual situation, they have already know what to expect because they saw it play out in a right. story. Um, and I know for myself, I've used a video version of that where you do a page as like, you know, like a slideshow on your phone, you take a picture of each page and then the kid can watch a quick video too. Cause we all know that there are some kids that do better with the videos yes. than they do with books. But, um, more often than not, we do the traditional book, which just occurred to me, Brie, that there's another strategy that's related is that there's eating in a lot of books, a lot of children's books. There are situations in which children eat or animals eat. You just want to be, and and those are great things. You just want to be careful that you're not introducing too many videos about eating and too many messages about um, food. And you just, the other like quick caveat, it can be really helpful for a kid to learn about eating 
through other people doing it. Dolls, doggies in books, other kids in books. There are some weird messages in some books about food being good and bad and about kids getting pressured to eat. So you certainly want to kind of pre-screen books about eating and make sure that they're not all about um, bad messages like food and reward, food being used as rewards or putting painting a certain food in a negative light. Um, and then also that you're not only reading books about feeding, that it's still just a small part um, as it should be in the course of your day of your activities. The same is true for books. It's fine if you have 10 books and one of them has a little message about feeding in it. And I think that's where social stories for us in our practice really came in is that we were finding that for some of these kids, they were beyond that level of some of the some of the eating books that are out there are just kind of still at a really basic toddler level. Sure. And so it it came to us that it occurred to us that it was important for for them to learn these lessons, but not in that really kind of early learning way that yeah. there were some more advanced things that we could teach them. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't described very well in some of in some of the books. So, and yeah. they needed more information right. to feel okay. Right. Yeah. And then you mentioned earlier to me when we were talking before the recording, uh, something else that you use with older kids that is helpful. So for older kids, sometimes a really helpful tool is actually journaling. Um, I had a really great 11 year old that I worked with years ago that was a beautiful writer. And it was a social story came to mind. It was sort of like, I know that there's something going on here. There's feelings, there's kind of understanding that's happening. Um, but communicating that face to face was really challenging for us in our, our relationship and with her parents. And so what we, or actually what, what this little girl decided to do was to journal and, um, she wrote all about the things that she was feeling, the things she was nervous about, and she didn't have to share it with us, but she ended up sharing, which was really helpful for us to kind of understand and respond in a way of recognizing some of those feelings or or misunderstandings maybe that she was having. Um, so for any kid that that can write or type, even, you know, now where we have the luxury of all this technology, um, using typing sometimes to have just an empty Word doc and get some things out there um, on paper. I know uh, for me, what, writing things down is really helpful. Um, yeah, for a lot of people, I think writing can be a lot easier than the social pressure that comes with having to talk about yes. things. Um, and so thinking yeah. about, I, there's some really great kind of kids journals and and ways that you can you can do it very easily, but just writing some things down, having having that time to sort of reflect and write some of the things that they maybe have questions about but are too scared to ask or things that they're wondering about that they can't really kind of form form in a in a thoughtful way that's getting their point across going through some of these kind of big things. So um, journaling actually it is a really nice tool for some older kids that yeah, might be past that, that ability, that picture, you know, well, stage. Yeah, it's so true. And that was those, those, those entries were phenomenal. They were. She was such a sweetie pie that had such really, really deep insights into her, her experience around food. Um, and sometimes they surprise us. Yes. <laughs> and they're, they're able to share some more things than um, we thought they were. And that the feelings 
also surprise us when we can kind of access them in a way that's non-threatening. Um, so I think, Bree, thank you so much for kind of highlighting the most common ones. I think we hit the big ones. I know that there's probably for every individual case, different types of visual supports or structure and supports, um, visual and otherwise, that can help kids on this journey. Um, one just kind of closing note, um, and we've talked about this in numerous episodes, but if you're asking yourself whether or not it's going to work or whether or not it's a good idea to try a, any given support with your child, um, the, the kind of guiding light question that we always encourage people to ask themselves is this thing that we're about to do, is this support I'm considering using going to help my ch- child understand and trust food more? And if it is, do it. And if it's going to help them understand and trust food less, don't do it. And so that applies to these supports that we talked about today. Yeah. If it feels like these things are going to be helpful and build trust and understanding, go for it. Um, And if you need some help, there's help out there. We certainly can be of help, but there's lots of um, awesome professionals out there that can help with some of these. So Bree, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Have a great one. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.